Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, so I wanted to remind you guys I have links below to Critical Merchandise, which is certainly timely for the holiday season if you're looking at getting things for your friends, loved ones, relations, then consider shopping at Critical Merchandise, uh, which is below. It is a Spreadshirt site uh, where you can get uh, logos and stuff that I've made and, and put them on uh, shirts and hats and mugs and stuff like that. So you can check that out. And I've also got um, an Amazon list of recommended books below uh, that goes to an Amazon site that you can also check out, and I get a little uh, commission or whatever if you buy things through that. So anyway, those things are there, and it's the holiday season, so I figured if there was ever a time to plug them, now would be that time. I am going to be talking fast this week as I am getting through the show here because I want to give you guys some great answers, but it's also my birthday weekend. <laughs> so I did not do a uh, Critical Conversation show this week on Friday because that was my actual birthday. And um, and today I'm recording this here on Saturday for posting on Sunday. And um, so just wanted to uh, let you guys know it was my birthday. I am now 51 years old. Old man, I am sure, according to some of you, a young man, for according to some of you others. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just kind of, you know, navigating my way through life here. But I will say that, uh, you know, birthday two weeks before Christmas, uh, always been that way in my life. Um, but what a great time uh, to sign up on Patreon and help this channel, uh, help support this channel that way as well. And I have now opened up, by the way, annual memberships on my Patreon site. So you can go there and sign up and get a 5% discount, support the channel, support me, support my work. And um, and just do a once a year deal. So I, apparently that has some appeal to people. I have been on a plan where it's been every month. You can give a dollar, two dollars, five dollars. I've got some tiers, some classes already set up on the Patreon site. If you go to it, I think there's a one dollar, five dollar, twenty dollar, and you know something like that. Um, but those are just those are just levels you can sign up for. But you can you can uh, support the channel with any amount that you want. Okay, so I wanted to put that out there for you guys. And every little bit really does matter and does help me out and uh, helps keep the lights on and the show going here. Okay, enough plug on that. Let's go ahead and get to your questions, Laurent Saclair. In season two of Scientology in the Aftermath, Leah and Paul Haggis were talking about the celebrities that are still in Scientology. And if I understood it well, they were holding these celebrities accountable for not stepping up against Scientology's practices or for not wanting to look into it. Leah also talked about how she didn't do the right thing as a Scientologist, meaning she didn't want to confront what her best friend was telling her about her brother's experience as a Sea Org member at the time and didn't want to confront what Paul was saying, too, when, her, when he left. Now, I know Leah was asking questions and got punished for it, and I assume the same happened to Paul at some point. The thing I'm unsure about and wanted to ask you is, how much blame or accountability can we give to cult members when they don't look into allegations of abuse or whatnot in their group, or even not speaking out? Isn't this one of the main points of not, quote, owning your mind, quote, 
as a, as a cult member. I don't want my question to sound like people shouldn't be accountable for what they do. I'm a firm believer in taking responsibility for your actions. My only but is, how does that apply to cult members? Okay, thanks for your question. This is a tough one and not one that I feel I have solid, stable answers on right now that I can give you that are just going to be, well, this is the perfect answer and and here you go. It's it's one that I am, this is a, this is a topic of blame, shame, responsibility, accountability. These are, these are very, very, um, you know, they're, they're, they're deep concepts and they're, and, and our understanding of them is based to a great degree on um, knowledge, uh, wisdom, um, you know, a, a self-awareness of what one is doing. Um, even in, in law, I think in mens rea is, you know, the intent, you have to have an, a, an actual purposeful intent to do a thing in order for it to be punishable by the law. Because if you accidentally do something or did something, un, you know, in an unthinking way, not a, not necessarily a careless way, but in an unpurposeful way, then, you know, should you be held accountable for it? Uh, of course, it all depends on what you did and who it affected. And at the end of the day, it really does come down to that. You know, how severe, how how damaging, how destructive were your actions? And were those actions a result of uh, or were those actions informed by your belief set as a, as a cult member, let's say? Um, can we hold, you know, uh, I mean, it, it, we go to this, of course, I, you know, I'm going to bring up, you know, Germany and World War II, because of course it's the greatest way to give the extremist example of people, ordinary people, right? Ordinary men, ordinary women, nothing remarkable about them at all. Ordinary children and how their minds were reformed or changed were propagandized, um, into, you know, them believing that doing really, really atrocious, awful things, while not necessarily a good thing, they didn't all believe that, you know, killing people or shooting people or destroying people's lives was necessarily a good thing, you know, universally, but it wasn't objectionable. It wasn't bad. It was okay to round up all the Jews and stick them in their own neighborhoods and put armbands on them and segregate them from the rest of society and take away their bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. So, when it when when you can you know when you can manipulate people's minds through controlling the information that's available to them and prioritizing for them what is and isn't important about that news or information you control them right and so can those people then be held responsible for their actions well I think for me right now, as I'm looking at answering this, the way I want to talk about it is I want to say, why do we hold people responsible or accountable for their actions? What is it we seek to accomplish in doing that? Retribution or justice and reform or change, or we want to cure or, or, or make the person no longer in a position or headspace where they know that that's okay. They, they, they need to learn a lesson. They need to learn that that's not acceptable behavior, that it's not tolerable, and we won't put up with it. And that's the kind of reform or rehabilitation that you want to create in people. Our prison system, of course, tends to focus almost exclusively on the retribution or payback uh, punishment aspect of that, and very little attention, uh, comparatively or relatively speaking, is actually put on the rehabilitation part. 
And, um, and yet that's really kind of the most important part of what we're trying to accomplish when we're trying to get people to be accountable or take responsibility for what they have done is we want them to get into a headspace where they are no longer you know, going to do those things, where they can be trusted to not do those things anymore. And this goes for everywhere from theft to larceny to murder to you know, every crime there is. So I, there's a lot of different opinions about this. I know I'm not going to get universal agreement on what I'm saying right now. There are a lot of people out there who think that it's just about punishment. And it's just about sequestering, you know, people away from society who have proven that they can't play well with others and don't want to, you know, behave or act in a social manner. And there's also the question and problem that there are a certain percentage of the population who will never play well with others and who will never get along with everybody else. But that gets into the bigger, wider, you know, topic of criminality and social reform and the social contract and all that. I'm trying to address this question about cult members. And, and with cult members, you have people who have been specifically targeted by an individual or group um, or, a, or a, an influence mechanism, I guess we could say. Because even if you look at online cults or online cultic activity, you don't find a single individual sometimes behind the whole thing. You find a group collective think sort of perpetuating a dogma that can radicalize people and people can be, you know, go all in and go down the rabbit hole on that. So I, so I'm not even saying that it's a specific individual who has radicalized or changed you when you are a cult member, but coercive control and, and, um, and the kind of radicalization that we talk about with cultic thinking or extremist thinking is a, is, is something that is, that is done to a person. There are causative agents there that have done this to a person. I think I think the online cult thing gets a bit gray. So I will I will just sort of park that for a second because I think that is the subject of a lot more study uh, in the future. Study I want to contribute to in some fashion myself through my studies. So so focusing more on the charismatic cult leader model, which is the one we're all mostly familiar with. You have a situation where somebody is, as you said in your question, trying to replace the mind of the follower with their own mind, with their own ideas. They are, they are you know, engaging in reforming the thoughts of their followers and, and changing the way that their psychology actually works. So, so, you, so you have this causative agent there that does have some degree of responsibility for what's going on. Remember that Charles Manson never killed anybody, never stabbed, shot, killed anyone, and yet he is the infamous guy in prison to, you know, forever until he died um, because he was the organizer, the ringleader, the one who put it all together and, and, and coerced these people into uh, acts of violence and murder. Now, the women, the, the, the kids, really, who followed him also went to jail and also paid the price for that. And they should have, right? Because accountability has to, well, it has to be met. And, and in fact, those people, just as another case study here, um, you know, when Manson and the, and the family were caught, 
those girls were completely fine with what they had done. They were not in a headspace where they were at all sorrowful, uh, you know, uh, that that they had seen they had done anything wrong in murdering, you know, Sharon Tate and and the other things that had happened there. So, So there was no responsibility being taken by them. So society, of course, moves forward and punishes them by putting them in jail because it's trying to create a headspace with them of, hey, you did something so antisocial, you can't actually be part of our our group, our society anymore. And we have to, you know, get you out of that situation. Now, there is now the reality of those girls growing up in prison and coming to a place where they realized what they had done and and uh, and came to accept responsibility for, at least they said they did. Um, and let's assume for the sake of my answering this question that they were real, that they that they really heartfelt meant that, that they did have time and education and distance from Manson, the cult influencer, right, to get their heads back in order to reassume their earlier personality traits and and moral characteristics and understand that they had done something horrible and awful. Let's just say that was the case. I'm sure that there could be arguments made in these specific instances of, you know, maybe it took them, you know, longer. Maybe there are red flags still. I don't really know. I haven't studied that in that much detail, but I do know that they really did seem to have a change of heart. And that is really where I'm trying to go with this is that's what you're trying to create with the accountability and the and the blame and the shame and the punishment is you're trying to get them to that headspace where they can be trusted to not act that way again. That's the whole point. And if you can get somebody into that headspace, and this happens all the time, Former Nazis, former KKK, former extremely violent people, former terrorists have reformed, have changed, have reassumed their earlier pre-cult identity and moral compass and did regain their humanity. So it can be done. This idea that criminals can't be reformed, that there is no hope. Well, not for everyone. You know, yeah, there are a certain percentage of people who will not be reformed, who cannot play well with others. But that is a a smaller percentage than the number of people that we have in our prisons, especially here in the United States. So, So bottom line where I'm going with this is that, yes, cult members should be held accountable and responsible for their actions whether, um, you know, as cult members, whether they were under the influence of another or not, they still engaged in the actions they engaged in. And the purpose of, uh, of, a, of a law or, or, or a judicial action is to protect society by sequestering or separating those people from society until those people can be trusted to be part of society again. I think we all know this. I'm just I'm just spelling it out clearly so that I'm I'm clear where I'm coming from on this that that's the goal. We want that to happen and I think that can happen. I think a lot more work could be done and should be done in in the the area of rehabilitation of criminals that is really given the shortest of shrifts. Um I can sp- I can say that with certainty here in the United States probably in the rest of the world as well, certainly in uh, India, China, Russia. I mean, these are 
you know, the major countries of the world are not engaged in very good rehabilitation efforts when it comes to dealing with the antisocial criminal uh, elements and when dealing with people who have been the victims of undue influence and coercive control and uh, cultic thought reform techniques. So we got a lot to do here, right? And we do most of the work in the detection and prevention phase, but uh, very, very little. I mean, as little as is being done there on the cult front, and, and believe me, very little is being done compared to the, the magnitude of the problem. As, little, as, as much as, or as little as we're doing there, we're doing almost nothing when it comes to how do we rehabilitate people who have committed criminal acts end up in prison or behind bars who have been victims of, you know, who have been part of cults. So um, so it really is kind of bottom of the barrel that we're going to get to these people. And that's a real shame because there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good people who have fallen for some really stupid ideas and have ended up doing very stupid things. And they, you know, do get out of that headspace and they do deserve to get another shot, to get another chance at society, you know, and that's why I, you see me lamenting that a little bit when I talk about it. So anyway, there you go. I hope that answers your question and gives you, at least gives you some food for thought. Kevin Zay, how does Scientology treat global pandemics such as what we are experiencing now? According to them, is this something that can be cured through auditing? Are medical and science issues such as this considered thetans? Okay, thanks for the question, Kevin. I'm not really sure I understand. I quoted your question. I'm not really sure I understand that last bit about medical and science issues are considered thetans. But um, but I can certainly speak to, um, you know, being cured through auditing. And Scientology absolutely believes that uh, auditing will cure you of your physical ailments or problems. Specifically, what it me- what they really believe is that Scientology will rehabilitate or address your spiritual trauma, your emotional problems, and based on past experiences that are causing you to be ill or be predisposed to getting ill or having accidents or injuries in the here and now. So auditing is not addressing the injury or the accident or the illness directly. It's addressing you as a spiritual entity and the reasons why you were predisposed to, to, to have your body go uh, in, into ill health or, or bump into things or run into stuff or fall over or whatever it is that happened. So when it comes to a global pandemic like the COVID-19 thing here, um, it's really no different than, in, than the common cold or the flu or getting, you know, your arm chopped off or, you know, something like that. It's just, it's something bad happens to you. And that's a reflection of your spiritual state. This is all going back to very old philosophy of the secret and the idea that you are your life or your health or your condition is is a reflection of your spiritual health or your spiritual self or existence. And this is this is very, very, very old thinking. And Scientology has just sort of tuned it up with some sciencey kind of words and a procedure called auditing, which pretends to find and address the source of your spiritual trauma. So um, that's basically how they consider it or address it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really not sure about this last bit that you asked, but, um, but medical or science issues are, um, you know, they're, they're just not, they're not real. Like all of this 
ultimately, ultimately speaking, okay, not in a practical sense, not in any real world sense, but when you get into the airy-fairy side of Scientology and the theoretical side of Scientology, it gets a bit airy-fairy. And, and ultimately, the ultimate belief there is that all of this is an illusion, that it, you and I are mutually creating and that the only reality here, the only thing that's really real about this entire universe is us, is us as spirits. Or even our bodies are just mock-ups. They're just creations. They're imaginary things that you as a Thetan are creating. I shouldn't say imaginary because that implies that it's not, that doesn't have substance or reality. But the whole physical universe is only as real as you basically are invested in and are believing in creating it. And you are actively creating it every moment of every day that you're around. So that's the ultimate idea that this all goes back to. And if you have that as an underlying philosophical base, then anything is possible. Anything at all is possible through positive thinking or through postulates, as they call it in Scientology, through intentional creation or thinking, you can make anything happen, ultimately speaking. That's the belief, and that is where Scientology kind of springboards from. So I hope that clarifies that for you. Nick C., what, if any, are your thoughts on the suppression of Falun Gong by the Chinese government? Thanks for the question, Nick. And you forced me to kind of look up and look into Falun Gong as a movement, as a topic, uh, something I've only heard about. Of course, you have, um, oh, I forgot, Shen Tzu. Anyway, there's the, that dancing troupe that's sort of a front group for that or part of that activity. Um, I'm not going to break down all of Falun Gong here. You guys need to do your own research on that. That's a whole video required to really break down the whole history and practice of what Falun Gong is all about. But like Scientology in Russia, I think of Falun Gong with uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party's suppression of it in China and around the world. They, Falun Gong is a, is a philosophical practice of meditation and exercises, spiritual exercises that are supposed to, you know, move a person toward uh, achieving spiritual enlightenment. It's uh, sort of considered a kind of Buddhism or um, Taoism, and it's kind of involved. And, you know, and I don't pretend to understand Chinese philosophy or d deep Chinese history. So I don't go too far into interpreting Chinese philosophy or religion. Um, Falun Gong is, you know, is only a quasi religion. And, and as far as they're concerned, it didn't want to identify as a religion because that would have immediately put it under. Uh, suppression in China. It actually started more recently than I thought. Its leader is living in New York. It started in the 90s, uh, mid-80s, 90s in China as part of the Qigong movement, I believe is how it's pronounced, which is, again, breathing, meditation exercises. This was party-sanctioned and approved, and this was an, a, a big, huge, explosive movement in China. So, Anyway, I'm now doing what I said I wouldn't do, which is getting into all the history of this. But um, where I where I really want to go is to say that I don't agree with what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to this group, nor do I agree with what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to pretty much any group or any way, anything, because I think that the Chinese Communist Party is itself 
a destructive cult on the lines of the North Korean government. Um, different mode, different model, because it's not a cult of personality as such, but it is still very, very much um, a government type that uses, in fact, were the original users, uh, you know, of Robert J. Lifton's study mm-hmm. of thought reform, of of brainwashing. And, and this is a thing, and they do it. And, and they do a lot worse, too. They use incredibly violent means to ruthlessly, ruthlessly suppress any group that the, that the Chinese Communist Party feels is at all a threat to its power or its base or its idea set because it's got its own thought reform that it uses on its citizens in order to convince them that the CCP is the one thing that they need and that the Chinese government and the Chinese country and the Chinese nation and all that is, you know, the best thing in the world. And uh, and that's how they run their operation. And they use very, very violent means to accomplish their ends. And to, to them, the end justifies the means. And they are all about clean thinking and pure, pure thinking. You know, brainwashing comes from cleaning, you know, pure thought. The idea of, of, of not having corrupted or, or dirty thinking. And, uh, and they're, they're big on that. So they want to cleanse the soul. They want to cleanse the spirit, cleanse the, the psyche. And their, and their approach is that our way is the best way and there is no other way possible. And the Marxist you know, dialogue and, and the communist ideology is, is all that matters and is the only, the only belief set you ever need to have. So any other rival belief set, and the Falun Gong belief set is very much a rival to the CCP mindset, uh, must be ruthlessly suppressed. So that's what they do. And it's awful. It is the most disgusting, heinous stuff. And it's not just Falun Gong who's at the receiving end of the CCP's brutality. They, you know, that we have the Yeagers and we have uh, other Muslim groups, other religious groups in China that are, that are very ruthlessly suppressed. So, um, so I don't agree. So my thoughts on it are that I don't agree with it in any way. And I really, really, really am concerned about the long-term consequences of the perpetuation of the CCP and uh, what it's doing to that part of the world and what it's doing to the world at large, because the, the China as a nation is becoming much, much, much more powerful um, they are taking the place of, of, of Russia in our earlier Cold War situation, and, um, and I hope it doesn't go in that direction, but it already is going in that direction, so I don't know how much farther it has to go. I'm not trying to get on a political rant here, but I am just saying that from a strictly from my position as somebody who understands and is pushing back against cultic means of control— I see the CCP as one of the most dangerous threats to this entire planet. So, um, so that's kind of how I how I look at that. Falun Gong, by the way, as an entity in New York, appears to have its own little cult going. So I'm not saying Falun Gong as an organization is completely blameless or innocent of its own methods of thought reform or, or coercive control. When it comes to its core, deep membership around its leader, who lives in New York—not New York City, but I think New York State—they have this—they have this property out there where they have set up a school and they've set up a you know this big, large property out in the out in the rather rural area. They're getting a lot of pushback out there because of that, because the locals don't like it. There's a lot of people out there. 
Uh, apparently, the guy who started this whole thing rules with a rather iron fist on that property, which is kind of interesting. Um, again, I, I, need, I would need to do a deeper dive on that before I could say a whole lot more about it with any degree of certainty or authority. But it does appear that there are problems with this group. But there's also problems with Scientology. But you don't see me saying, go Russia, when Russia is imprisoning Scientologists for the thought crime of believing that L. Ron Hubbard was right. That's not good. And, you know, one cult fighting another cult is, you know, there's, it's, it's too bad. It's two wrongs, and they don't make a right. So um, I'm not saying that Falun Gong is an international worldwide cult. I'm saying that there is behavior at their compound that indicates that they might have some culty stuff going on there. And I want to be clear that that's a different thing from somebody practicing Falun Gong in a park in San Francisco doing some breathing exercises. You know, that's a, that's a very different thing from what goes on in Scientology, very different thing from what goes on in these other groups. So, um, so that's a summary answer I can give you. I hope it, um, I hope it informs, and, and uh, there you go. Steve Wood. It has been documented that LRH said that through auditing, one can go back millions and trillions of years. This would mean, however, before human life was even on Earth. Therefore, was it ever explained where people were during this time frame? Did he ever explain this anomaly, or has no one ever asked or thought about it? Steve, interested in that Scientology cosmology. One of these days, I'm going to have to go through all of Hubbard's lectures, and there are a great many of them, and actually document or try, you know, put down what this cosmology is all about, because it's extensive. Basically, from my understanding of and memory of all the lectures and stuff that I did listen to and stuff that I read, the answer to your question is that, yes, Hubbard did address um, life pre-Earth. And there are a couple of things you need to know that he said. One of them is that the universe and the planet Earth here and all the planets of the universe are infinitely older than we imagine them to be. Things here are billions, trillions of years old, not uh, a couple billion or a few billion, as Earth scientists say. Hubbard just just flat out said they were wrong. Carbon dating is wrong. They don't know how to date stuff. They've got it all wrong. And this universe is a lot older than anybody on Earth imagines that to be. So that's the first thing you need to know. So we so so first off, we have all been around. As humans or in bodies, in these kind of two-arm, two-leg, nose-eyes, meat bodies, for a long time. The other thing to know is that there are other kinds of bodies. In fact, an infinite form of bodies. There's all kinds of bodies that people have had in all kinds of places all over the physical universe. Remember that, and as I mentioned in another question here this week, the, the physical universe and everything in it is a creation of us as Thetans. And there have been times earlier on the, on the time track where we were a hell of a lot more aware of the fact that we are Thetans and that, and that Thetans have abilities and we could create stuff just by thinking it and putting it there and, and inventing stuff. So the bodies that we've had, the situations we've been in have not always been this sort of life that we have here on earth. We've had other lives where we knew we had the force, we had magic, we had the ability to do stuff. 
And so the bodies that we had and the we could shape and change them. We could create new bodies, you know, stuff like that is where I'm trying to go with that. You, when you are in a position where you are in the driver's seat over the material existence of stuff, that puts you in a very different game when, when you're experiencing life. And that is, according to Hubbard, how things used to be. And they have generally, or sorry, they have gradually over, over many, many millennia, they have degraded to where we're in our current sorry state here on earth, where we're stuck in these silly bodies and have to eat and drink stuff and have sex to recreate and, you know, all this stuff that we have with religion and governments and isms and this and that. Hubbard said it was all a bunch of bunk. It was all just a bunch of crap, ultimately, and that people were pretty stupid and really in a very, very hypnotized state here. And really so used to being told what to do and how to do it that they just automatically comply when you tell them to do stuff. I mean, he had pretty low appraisal of human of humanity in its current state. And, uh, and that was just kind of part of the thing. But he said that there had been earlier civilizations, even going back to Markhab, the Xenu story. I mean, that is that time period. And this is in my book, by the way, and you can check it out. And, and there are stuff you can find on the online where Hubbard goes over this stuff. He said that even back then, and this was 76 or 70 million years ago or something like that, um, when the whole Xenu de, de, you know, debacle occurred, now the, the genocide, when that, before that happened, our bodies didn't age the way they do now. We had much longer lifespans in human-looking bodies that were in a civilization that looked an awful lot like, Hubbard said, 1950s America. Fedora hats, business suits, fire trucks, you know, companies, homes, picket fences, dogs, cats, racetracks. People would go and race on racetracks, but they lived lives much longer, and they didn't have to necessarily even have sex to reproduce. They didn't necessarily need to eat. They didn't necessarily they didn't kick off every seventy years. So you had a very very different way of life. Even though, but the the weird thing, of course, is that then Hubbard says that it's going to be just like nineteen fifties America, which would not be the case if we had very extended lives and we had some degree of spiritual awareness. So it's so it's it's very contradictory. The whole thing really is just a big mash of bad ideas. I mean, I'm describing all of this and interpreting it for you in a way that kind of makes makes it make some kind of sense, but really Hubbard's just rambling randomly from one lecture to another to another throwing out these little tidbits and I really have to collect all this stuff. The information I've given you right here in this answer in just the last five, ten minutes is compiled from my memory from about seven or eight different sources uh, over years of my time in Scientology, picking up these little tidbits here and there and putting them all together. This is not, there. there is no one coherent place you can go in Scientology where you're going to get the whole narrative from beginning to end. And that's why so many different Scientologists have so many different ideas about their own spiritual history and the, the ultimately what the cosmology of Scientology even is. Because you've got to go through a ton of stuff 
at all the different levels, including the confidential stuff, which is a great deal of what I'm giving you, comes out of the confidential information, which I never even was exposed to when I was a Scientologist. I didn't come across that stuff till afterwards. So anyway, point is that it's pretty convoluted. It's pretty random. Um, but Hubbard did make claims that sort of give a picture here that we were all that we've all been around for a long time, that bodies have been around for a long time. And basically, if something he says doesn't make sense, he'll come up with some other zinger to make it make sense. And that's really, at the end of the day, all you really need to know about Scientology belief sets is that they don't really make a lot of sense. It is a jumbled mess of random statements given over years in lots of different places. And half of once you once you get in the front door and really start getting into the belief set of Scientology and educating yourself on it as a Scientologist, you quickly realize you're going to be at this for years because the way it's all put together and organized is it's like I said, it's it's very hit and miss and 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 bit and piece. So there you go. Angela. I like your focus on PTSD and related effects of cults slash abuse. Does one of your videos discuss strategies for trauma survivors to connect slash date when we feel slash think so different? I'm 49 years old. Hey, Angela, thank you for this. I don't have one video, so I thought I would address this as a question, as an answer here on my Q&A. Um, and really all I can do is share with you my own experiences. I know that this is a very, very different experience for people in different parts of the country or in different situations, different areas. But for me, um, you know, when I first got, you know, in terms of trauma survivors connecting and dating and hooking up, I have been, I have, I have chosen to be open about my experiences and I'm, and I have had to learn to draw back on TMI, on, on just like announcing everything about myself at the get-go. Um, you, you know, that, that, that can be its own brand of problem when you're trying to start relationships with people. They don't want everything right at the beginning. They do want a little bit of time to get used to who you are. And so I have not made it a secret that I was a Scientologist. I've never lied about it. I have never said anything about um, or tried to deny it. And, um, and I have had nothing, I had, I mean, now I'm married, but up until then, I didn't have anything but success talking about it or putting it out there that I have trauma in my past and um, trust issues and, and et cetera, et cetera, and letting that be known. Now, again, not all on the first date, but what I, what, how I approached it was, you know, be friendly, be open, just be honest. Um, try to find people who can relate to me and my experiences. I didn't particularly want to connect with an ex-Scientologist right away or think that that was something I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to find somebody who shared my trauma in order to have a relationship with them. And I think that was a good move. I, I that certainly worked for me. Um, I certainly could have. I mean, there were ex-Scientologists I met that, you know, certainly were relationship compatible. Um, but I, so I wasn't eschewing it totally, but I just wasn't trying to keep myself in that corral, so to speak. 
And, um, and I think that by going out and trying to connect with lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds and experiences, we um, do ourselves a favor because you get a well, a better, more well-rounded look at, you know, how the world works and how people are and how different people's ideas can be from your own and how their worldviews can be so different. So I tried to, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I tried to be as open as possible, as accepting, as tolerant as possible in trying to relate to other people. And I found a great deal of success in being that way listening uh, maybe more than talking, although for me, that's a little hard. Uh, honestly, I talk a lot. Um, but, you know, so I, so I guess, you know, that, that part of it is, is a little hard for me to, to totally say with a straight face. But, um, you know, but that's, that's kind of how I approached it attitude-wise. And as far as you, you know, you mentioned here, because we think and feel so different, there's a thing you come to that I've come to realize that I think you might eventually as well, which is that there is such a, a great thing to be accomplished in our lives by recognizing and tolerating the differences of others and kind of being open and accepting to their differences. And that you come to find, I, I have come to find that Everyone is so unique and different that way that that they're that that considering myself uniquely different because of my trauma or cult survivor status is a mistake. It's it's it it puts me in a I mean, yes, I am different from other people that way. But if I put that as a top-tier priority, is how, how I see myself in my self-image. When I present to others, then I'm creating a gap. I'm creating a difficult border for them to cross or position for them to have to deal with. I'm a trauma survivor. I'm different from you. I'm not the same. I can't. You have to talk differently to me to the way you talk to other people. That as much as I could sort of put that on the back burner and not put that there and not make that the front and center attitude in my approach to other people the easier I could get along with and relate to other people. Um, and I hope that that makes sense because I'm not saying to deny, as I said at the very beginning, I'm not saying to deny, to lie about, to deceive anybody about it, but also not to unduly put that cult survivor, trauma survivor status there as though it's so special and unique and different that you know, you have to be treated with kid gloves or something or treated, like I said, very, very differently from other people. It's, it's. Um, I think the faster that we can sort of self-correct that idea and realize that that instead of us being so different and that being a bad thing, where I'm really trying to go with this is recognizing everyone's different. And it's really learning to appreciate and learning about how those differences manifest with every single individual in your life that you really do grow strong bonds with them. Uh, that, you know, if you only treated people as a social surface veneer type of thing and everybody else is the same and you're so different from all of them, 
you know, you're kind of, like I said, you're kind of creating your own barriers or walls there. And um, that's an attitude. It's one I've adopted. I can't say it's going to work for everybody, but you asked for some advice or, you know, have I done anything about this to discuss, you know, how we might break down those barriers or self-imposed barriers. That's how I've done it. I'm sure there are other ways that could be done for other people or other approaches that would be just as successful for them, but that's how I've done it. So I hope that I hope that helps. Okay, and with that, we are going to be wrapping up our show for this week. I said I was going to try to give a bunch of fast answers, and then I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much for coming around and listening to me this week. Really, really appreciate it, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.